Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. My name is Shadi Nabhan, and I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. The Precision Oncology Alliance is a collaborative research effort between Keras and many cancer centers across the country, collaborating on precision oncology research to help advance the way we care for patients and hopefully improve the outcomes of patients with cancer. The Keras Molecular Minute podcast, you can find that anywhere you look at your podcast. Could be the Apple Podcast, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, pretty much any podcast outlet. It is dedicated to really discuss clinical advances in various aspects of oncology with a twist into how precision oncology, biomarker research, and really personalized therapeutics are integrated and involved in the way we care for patients with cancer. Today's podcast, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Emil Liu, an associate professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota, and a phenomenal GI oncologist. We are going to talk about several advances in GI oncology. For context, I just want to make sure that our listeners know that we taped this podcast in late November 2020 before the annual ASCO GI meeting. It is being aired after the ASCO GI meeting has been concluded. So I just want to make sure as you listen to this podcast, you realize the timing because during my interview with Dr. Emil Liu, we've referred several times to the upcoming ASCO GI meeting. And by the time you listen to it, there will be no upcoming ASCO GI meeting until January, 2022. So want to make sure that you know when we taped it and when we are airing it. I'd like you to let us know how we are doing with this podcast. You can always subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Give the podcast the number of stars you believe it deserves and write a brief review, refer a friend or a colleague. Word of mouth always goes way long in making sure we disseminate the information about this podcast and others. Without further ado, Dr. Emil Liu on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast discussing GI oncology. Well, it's really a pleasure to host a dear colleague and a friend of mine, much smarter than me, but uh, he, we're still friends despite uh, his intellectual superiority. Uh, Dr. Emil Liu from the University of Minnesota. We're going to talk about a lot of things pertaining to GI cancers and how things have changed. And that's really pretty fitting because we are upon the dawn of the virtual ASCO GI meeting. So, Emil, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute. I appreciate you taking uh, some time of your busy schedule for uh, the folks who don't know you and uh, a little bit about you, what you do, how you spend your day, and what's your research interest. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you, Chatty. Uh, to use a Twitter vernacular, I'm both humbled and honored, as we see widely spread on Twitter, on which you and I are both active. Um, I'm humbled and honored to be here, and, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about GI oncology in general, where we're going, where we are, and especially as we're leading up to this GI ASCO symposium in January with a virtual version this year, uh, as, as seems to be the theme for 2020 um, of what's going on as we round the corner to 2021. So I'll just, uh, for those in the audience who may not know me, um, I've heard of me. I, um, I'm at the University of Minnesota. I'm a GI medical oncologist. I trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center kind of earlier in the, the, the turn of the corner into the genomics era. 
And I also subsequently completed a, a fellowship in neuro-oncology. So on the side, I'll do a little bit of brain tumors, but my clinical practice focuses on patient treatment of uh, patients with gastrointestinal cancers, advanced metastatic colorectal cancer, pancreas, uh, especially those two and others as well. I'm also medical director of our clinical trials office, our solid tumor unit, uh, what we call the STU portfolio and helping investigators with um, solid tumor clinical trials, both in the GI space and across the spectrum of solid tumors. And I also have a laboratory that focuses heavily on cancer cell biology and molecular biology of GI cancers, but also other invasive types of cancers, including mesothelioma and ovarian cancer. And I'm very involved in the clinical trial space, our molecular tumor board here at the university. Thank you. So we, you know, it's tough to cover all GI cancers in, you know, 20, 25 minutes, but, but we're going to try to kind of touch on some highlights. And I thought in preparation for today's podcast, I was thinking we'll talk a little bit of lower GI, a bit about upper GI, and a bit about pancreas cancer, especially with the loss of Alex Trebek to this disease. There's a lot of interest in the research in that. So let's start with upper GI. And, and I guess, you know, what I'm going to task you with is, you know, maybe the two biggest advancement in in upper GI cancers over the past uh, year or so. And I preface that, Emil, by by saying, uh, for me, as non-GI oncologist, when I look at GI oncology, I'm starting to notice that there's a little bit of a so much molecular subclassification to everything. Like, you know, I, you know, esophageal, gastric, everything. Maybe you can share with us the top couple of uh, advancement in upper GI cancers. Absolutely. The gastroesophageal cancer is really interesting because I think in the last five, 10 years, it's, it's quite a bit different type of cancer or set of cancers than when and you and I were both in training, Chatty. You know, traditionally, you know, when we talk about gastroesophageal cancers and in clinical trials, for decades, they've been lumped together as if they were just one classification of cancers. And at the same time, there were histopathologic classifications that our friendly neighborhood pathologists would tell us diffuse type or other uh, type of that's plastic of gastric and gastroesophageal junction based on anatomy. And that, that's really evolved in the last few years. And I would say in the last year or two, become more prominent in terms of what you do with that information more so than ever before. So with the molecular classifications, for example, of gastric cancer, now we're talking about EBV subtype and, and other subtypes like, this, like the MET classification that are more in the space uh, and purview of next generation sequencing and what we can identify on molecular oncology. And now beyond that, what do you do in terms of making that, those actionable targets? What are, what are the different histologies in terms of the prognosis, uh, the rate of invasion, and what you can do to treat them? HER2 and, and the amplification or alteration of HER2 is probably at the top of everyone's list, and that's not new in gastroesophageal cancers. But I think you know, the, the next generation is uh, we've, we've tried HER2 blockade, you know, most prominently with trastuzumab in combination with platinum FIVFU, for example, and then when there is progression on that, what else, what else is there? And I think our, our field right now, and I'm eager to hear what people have to say at GI ASCO Symposium, but what is the next? I know there's at least one symposium going to address that. There have been some dual blockade strategies that have been used in limited studies. There was an excellent trial led by a former co-fellow of mine at Sloan Kettering, Dr. Elena Jajigian, head of GI oncology at Morris Sloan Kettering, um, a limited center, uh, single center study of nearly 40 patients looking at dual blockade. And there, there's a lot of promise, but how to bring that into larger randomized controlled trials will be key to determine uh, whether that be the first line space or the what if, what if patients, what if, when patients progress on HER2 based therapy. Now that's one thing. And then also better differentiation of understanding of the biology of esophageal, even maybe compartmentalization of esophageal mid esophagus versus lower esophagus versus G junction. 
and then the, the more frank carcinomas that we see in the gastric space. And then I think from a, you know, I think second, I would say from a, a treatment strategy approach, especially for G-junction carcinomas, I think are very, very unique. And I find them very fascinating because they're literally stuck in the middle. And a lot of the trials for gastric carcinoma will include G-junction carcinomas traditionally, and also esophageal cancers will include some percentage of patients that have G-junction cancers. And so generally, if, you know, if, if we see a patient with G-junction cancer, for example, potentially operative candidate, what do you use? Do you use concurrent tumor radiation as per the cross trial leading up to usually use in the esophageal category, or do you use perioperative chemotherapy and what kind? A lot of it's evolved, but um, I think the next stage of evolution is really to better tailor that based on molecular classification and doing the trials to, to support that. So when we talk about the molecular aspect, though, upper GI, are patients now with advanced stage upper GI, esophageal, and gastric and so forth, are they all undergoing sequencing? Is that something that's considered standard? Are you selective in that? Mm-hmm. And is that really moving to earlier stages where folks are in clinical trials, you're trying to understand the molecular subtype of the diseases in earlier stage of the disease or not really, not yet? I think not yet. Um, I think definitely there's opportunity and I, I'm very much a, from a biologic standpoint and from a scientific standpoint, I'm very much uh, interested in correlated biomarkers. I think all clinical trials should have some of these hypothesis generating type of biomarkers, both from tumor genomics and also liquid biomarkers incorporated to every clinical trial, at least for generation of more data. But the current time, it's really restricted for the most part to stage four metastatic versions of these cancers. Beyond HER2, for example, for upper GI cancers and metastatic for which we have FDA approval and actual tailored drugs uh, for which is consensus expert guidelines, PDL1 is also a great example. So in this era of immunotherapy, you know, we have great admiration for our colleagues who specialize in melanoma or non-specialized lung cancer that are practically giving checkpoint inhibition to every one of their patients, or, or almost, it seems like. Whereas in GI, we're, we're so restricted because for the most of the GI tract, um, it's really limited to microsatellite and stable disease. And with FDA approval in June of 2020, based on tumor mutation burden of a 10 off, cutoff of 10, then we're allowed to do that for patients who have chemorefractory disease. But more uniquely, upper GI sits in a really best position in terms of the immunotherapy space and keeping us at the, the next wave of, of interest in immunotherapy. PDL1 is something that's it, it's something where it's 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 evolved and become more mature in terms of even just how do you test PDL1? How do you accurately test what clone of what antibody? And I've never seen that with any other cancer, so that's pretty interesting in and of itself. And it's kind of climbed up the ranks. So it's climbed up the ranks where if patients are refractory with upper GI cancers and have an adequate PDL1 score, a minimal PDL1 score, they can get in the third line setting. And then it became more de rigueur for second line setting. And then even a paper in jam oncology in the last six months uh, proposed uh, based on a, a trial to, to propose to even use it in the first line space. And then it might potentially be better than chemotherapy. I think the, the details of that trial are, are somewhat debatable, but just the principle that we're trying to use immunotherapy in a GI cancer earlier on is exciting. And it totally impacts when would results of genomics be relevant? It's right. starting to make genomic profiling much more relevant in the first-line setting than ever before. By the way, just before I forget, before I move to lower GI and upper GI, are you guys still doing neoadjuvant, adjuvant therapy? At the time of my training was, you know, you give chemo RT post-resection or you do neoadjuvant therapy, so perioperative therapy. Is that still the issue or this has that changed? Yeah, no, I mean, for, for the most part, and it's like, and it's changing, and, and, and so it depends. So it sounds like a very wishy-washy answer. 
you know, whether it's gastric or esophageal, I think the answers are more clear cut. So that, that paradigm established by the MAGIC trial uh, and published in 2007 really set a standard for gastric and allows for G-junction carcinomas as well for potentially surgically resectable forms of those cancers, chemotherapy prior to and after. And other subsequent trials like OEO5 and others started to get down into more details about tailoring how long were the new adjuvant courses, uh, which one would be appropriate, which exact regimens, and getting rid of the three-drug regimen uh, that's now kind of out of vogue and more like a full FOX or equivalent two-drug regimens are adequate. So that still very much holds. And I think tri clinical trials either in process or, or down the pike will start to, uh, start to integrate much better molecularly targeted therapy as part of that neoadjuvant and, and probably the adjuvant approach as well. So the strategy I would say is pretty much the same, but the tactics and approach are changing, probably better tailored to individual patients or, on, or it's on the way at least. So let's do lower GI cancers. You know, colorectal cancer is obviously, you know, pretty common, more common than upper GI cancers. What's, what's happening there over the past uh, six months or 12 months that uh, you think is uh, critical to uh, practitioners and uh, uh, researchers? Right. So, I mean, I think uh, that's a, uh, a cancer set that I have particular interest in across the board, uh, whether it's talking about the biology, the molecular biology and the cell biology of it, and even in terms of touching upon important points that, while not my strongest area of expertise, but obviously of interest for my patient population, health disparities, and also just this growing awareness the last few years with growing evidence that the young adult or early onset form of colorectal cancer defined as uh, people earlier than age 50 who develop and are diagnosed with colorectal cancer. And, in, and traditionally, we don't actually screen those patients, those people for colorectal cancer. So it's under-recognized uh, until recent years. And with the death of uh, Chadwick Boseman, I'm a huge fan of the Black Panther and all the Marvel movies. So, you know, I think that was really a capstone of really awareness and, and shock to many people. But it brought about a, an increased awareness in the general community that uh, early onset colorectal cancer is a problem and also health disparities. It's, it's a great problem as well. And these, these both need to be tackled from, from all angles. At the current time, we don't necessarily treat patients with early, or young, early onset or young onset colorectal cancer any differently, but I think there's a growing awareness that the biology may be different. So why would someone in their 30s or 40s, I've had patients in their 20s even get it who don't even have hereditary syndromes like APC in which they're almost destined to get it. Aside from that, why would they even get it? But their biology seems to be quite different. And in terms of genomic profiling, there might be a disproportionate number who may be having uh, RAS-driven or especially BRAF-driven forms that biologically may even differ along with the other the soup of other genes in the pool involved. But in terms of the overall treatment plan for colorectal cancer, I think a lot of that's still evolving. And, and uniquely, you know, the, in the, the TRIBE trial from researchers out of Italy the last few years and the other iterations of the TRIBE trial really pushed Folfoxiri. So it's a, it's a triple threat combination of, of Folfox with Arenotecan. And it's different dosing and not exactly the same combination and dosing as you would see for Folfox or Folfiri or even Fulfurinox for metastatic pancreas cancer, but uh, it's pretty intensive. And with or without bevacizumab, it, it, it's, a, it's a big punch. I might be dating myself here, but you know, growing up in the boxing world, Mike Tyson packed the meanest punch ever. So it's like a Mike Tyson punch, one or two at least. And I think something that's unique is you know, researchers have looked back on it and kind of flouting the paradigm of throughout the baby of the bathwater when chemotherapy no longer works because the disease has progressed on a two-dimensional scan, no longer ever touch it or use it again, by contrast, there are some emerging data that if you go to another line of therapy after Fulfoxiri with or without bevacizumab, you may be able to come back to that same regimen and may actually have efficacy. So 
I've had this discussion even in my own clinic with physician assistants and even other providers that are saying, well, why are you going back to a regimen that, that actually, you know, someone actually had progression disease on? So we have this in-depth discussion about what was the extent of disease progression, and we don't have tests to, to foolproof identify which exact drug of that combination is the one that biologically the patient developed a progression of disease on a refractory uh, nature to the cellular genomic level. But the idea, the notion, again, flaunts our usual approach to, to treatment. So but metastatic colorectal cancer, I, I feel like we have a long way to go. And with the emergence the last four or five years of the so-called sightedness and anatomic location. And so based on this side, you may or may not give an EGFR inhibitor or this or this side, it may have prognostic indication on the right side. I think it, it, the data, uh, you know, they think that the field is still maturing in that as something not definitive. And the way we can better integrate that into uh, standard of care is, is still, I would say, in progress rather than been very definitive. And Emil, in the adjuvant setting of uh, mm. colorectal cancer, if you can comment a little bit into what has changed, you know, there was a lot of uh, debates on three versus six months of Folfox, uh, Zelox. There were some questions about, uh, do you actually give adjuvant therapy based on the MSI, you know, stable disease, um, high frequency, can you uh, omit oxalipine, whatever it is. Can you maybe just a quick, concise summary into what, how you're approaching your patients in the adjuvant setting right now? And Absolutely. Uh, you can elaborate if you're giving adjuvant therapy for stage two disease. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think um, that's, that's obviously a hot space. It's a hot button issue. And probably my answer to it will, will actually uh, resonate with some and probably stir up a lot of right. we get controversy to others. Numbers. Emil, the more we discuss controversial topics, we get more listeners. There you I'm go. I'm all in. I'm all in. Draw them in and they're going to they're gonna tweet at you and give you all kinds of comments. And that's, go we're here it. to have a rambunctious debate. And that's, you know, that's a, that's important. I think it's always, the GI Ask Symposium, I hope that continues at the, at the microphone and, and online on social media. But, you know, I think the space is really controversial and it's interesting because the idea trial and that consortium when it was presented several years ago at the ASCO annual meeting and subsequent GI ASCO symposia, you know, the, the, the consortium of, of the trial, the basic principle was looking to see if we can spare patients of unnecessary chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting. So we're talking about stage three. So in other words, no positive disease. And also in general, when we talk about adjuvant therapy for the high risk versions of stage two. And the way we assess stage two is traditionally very based on histopathologic features, tumor perforation included and perineural invasion, lymphovascular invasion, rather molecular features per se, although that, you know, I, I think with correlated biomarkers, that will be in, in, um, in the works in the years to come and probably change our paradigm. But this notion of giving uh, three months versus six months of chemotherapy is to ideally spare patients of unnecessary chemotherapy that will not benefit them. And again, we all know this, but adjuvant postoperative chemotherapy, is, its intent is to reduce the risk, but it's attacking microscopic cells. But at, at its heart, it was a non-inferior trial that did not meet its predefined endpoint. And I, I still... Remember, I recall the actual presentation and the debate, the active debate that happened after that. And that, that phrase rings in my, in my head every time. I know ASCO and other guidelines have really incorporated this. And even to the point of saying not only are, are three months very acceptable, especially for low risk, as opposed to high risk, but then it, it became through further analysis about whether Zelox or Folfox or it is, you know, which one is better. And I think from a practical standpoint, if we just think about it practically, the Mosaic trial defined 12 cycles of Folfox as the standard of, or equivalent of standard of care. It's essentially six months, but in practical reality, oxalipatin is really hard to tolerate. And whether you follow the, the, the parameters of idea or not, usually by time patients receive, if it's Folfox cycle seven, eight, or nine, the cumulotoxicity is too much, and you probably dose reduce or eliminate altogether anyway. 
So in, in some sense, idea just kind of confirmed what people were doing anyway. Um, I'm, I'm less adherent to this notion that it has to be Cape uh, Ox, you know, Zelox regimen over full Fox, because at the end, I, I think of it more broadly about the patient's benefit by a doublet regimen encompassing A5-FU with oxal, you know, or equivalent with oxaliplatin is approximately a 50-60% risk reduction. I think so much of the swirling debate about K-box and people really holding fast that, of course, we must give K-box if you're given three months for low-risk disease. And now, even just in the lexicon, the last six months, people are very much standing on the soapbox and saying, uh, you know what, if you're giving the full six months, of course, it must also be Zilox. I'm, I'm less convinced on that data. I think it's more about broadly if patients can tolerate it, giving chemotherapy with the idea of risk reduction as compared to them not receiving chemotherapy, as opposed to splitting the hairs based on a non-inferior trial that didn't meet its endpoint. What is low risk stage three? So low risk stage three, I, you know, I think um, purely would be defined as a T1 or T2 and uh, a low N nodal staging disease. So, I mean, at, at its most simplest as an example would be a T2N1, uh, T1N1 would be less common, but it's, you know, we see those. And how do you now incorporate, if you do, microsatellite instability information into the decision-making of stage three? Yeah, uh, I wish I could tell you, you know, I think our center, like so many others, really incorporates microsatellite instability as standard of care across the board for all forms of colorectal cancer. So, you know, as a, as a medical, as a GI medical oncologist, I have that information. By the time I meet somebody in the post-operative setting, and my surgical friends will refer patients to me, and I know they have stage three disease, and they're I'm there to talk about adjuvant therapy. And I have information about microsatellite instability, but that doesn't yet really define or change the, the plan in terms of platinum with, with 5FU, although I think someday it should. You know, retrospective studies, you know, that are oft, you know, cited endlessly, usually just restricted just a few studies that say MSI may be associated with uh, less responsiveness to 5FU, but maybe in the earlier um, stage setting for colorectal cancer, maybe better prognosis, but worse prognosis with colorectal. And, you know, it, some of the, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I think um, gestalt flying around, but yet at the same time, fascinatingly, it's not yet really defined or been an integral biomarker to adjuvant trials. Whether that will be, I, I would argue it should be in any types of trials that are looking for biomarkers that are present in the tumor that could help define best level of benefit from chemotherapy, I think just broadly, and then further, people can tease out whatever they want with the three versus six months. I think patients who've gotten a three for three months have been pleased that they didn't have to six months. But conversely, I will tell you, I've had to have probably longer conversations where patients who will try to argue that they need six months of therapy, despite knowing about the idea trial, but despite my, despite my explanation of it, uh, because they feel they don't want to be shortchanged. And that's interesting conversation as well. Stage two by itself could be a whole episode, but uh, maybe in a couple of minutes, Stage two, let's say high risk, right? The ones with perforation and T4 disease and whatever this stage two. Is there a role for microsatellite instability in high risk stage two, node negative to make a decision on adjuvant therapy or not really? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's a great question. And, you know, traditionally with the studies that they might've cited that MSI was associated with a better, just from a pure biologic standpoint, rather than responsiveness to any type of therapy, that that may hold true for MSI disease. I've, on occasion, I've used it as a, quote, tiebreaker. So if you look at the traditional histopathologic features and if there's absence of high-risk features or just like two out of six, you know, histopathologic features and you're kind of not sure. And then, you know, the, the correct answer, whether it's the ASCO boards or you talk to nine out of 10 oncologists, it's like talking to dentists about toothpaste. You talk <laughs> to nine out of 10 oncologists, you say, excellent discussion with patient and discussion and consideration of patient preference. So objectively, as oncologists, we bring to the table discussion with patients about data. Um, sometimes I've used MSI high status as a tiebreaker and saying, 
you know, in addition to germline testing, we send you a cancer genetics team, but um, overall stage two is definitely a, a lower risk of recurrence than stage three. This MSI status may confer upon you perhaps a better biology. You know, there's still uncertainty. Um, it's definitely not black and white where of course they should, or of course they should not. In this era of immunotherapy, I think eventually with the, the, the approach of using checkpoint inhibition earlier in the course, and we heard argument earlier this year in June, 2020, 2020 the ASCO meeting, we're using checkpoint inhibition in MSI tumors for metastatic cases in the first line setting. I, I think the wave will probably take us to stage three to look at the adjuvant setting for those MSI high um, tumor type patients. And probably they will put in some high risk stage two patients with MSI status as well. Looking at that on trial would be a good idea so we can objectively figure that out. Let's move to pancreas cancer. We lost uh, really a celebrity um, and a gentleman, Alex Zubrak, to pancreas cancer. So uh, again, that's by itself, uh, an episode by itself. Maybe if you can share with listeners the biggest advance that you view in the past year for metastatic pancreas cancer and then for early stage pancreas cancer. Sure. So yeah, anyway, as I tell patients that uh, of the approximately 45,000 cases of pancreas adenocarcinoma, pancreas tumors in general in the U.S. each year, about half are metastatic at time presentation. And it presents a real conundrum uh, compared to when I started practice where we were on the cusp of fulfirinox being approved. And now we have gemcitabine and APAC attack. So at least we have some, some uh, weapons in our arsenal as opposed to 10, 20, 30 you know, years ago or more. But uh, the next great answer of what do we do when is really still outstanding. And many trials are trying to attack that and define the next best third line agent and beyond and better efficacy and better response rates and everything uh, grounded in improving overall survival. I think pancreas cancer biologically creates a, uh, so much more of a problem than the other GI cancers. And I'm perhaps biased in saying that, but just understanding the biology. And maybe I'll say advances in knowledge that include the fact that this idea of stromal depletion was considered a, a wonderful strategy and tactic a decade ago, well-designed clinical trials came forward. And then the last few years we realized, you know, that, that strategy didn't work in the way it was designed and the way it was intended or, or thought it would end up with, with improvement overall survival. Now I'm referring to studies looking at peg hyaluronidase in combination with chemotherapy for patients whose tumors eventually, you know, partly through the trial identified as having hyaluronin-rich forms of tumors. I think biologically, I think timing might be different. So maybe some clinical trials need to reassess timing. Should you deplete the stroma beforehand and then administer chemotherapy would be more effective. So I'm, and you know, from the, what I know is in the pipeline, um, I, overall, I'm not seeing things too different. I know there are some agents designed at reversing resistance to the drugs that we're already giving in the clinic, but I think there, there's a lot to be desired. For the earlier stages, my hope is that people working on biomarkers for screening of people at high risk, whether they have chronic pancreatitis or maybe even smokers, um, if that were to happen just now, I think probably when you and I were training, it was safe to say that it really wasn't considered uh, likely to ever screen people who smoke because they might have a risk of lung cancer. But here we are with low dose CT scans, and we don't know that it won't happen in the next five, 10 years for pancreas cancer or non-invasive types of biomarkers for those kind of patients. But it's so crucial to identify those patients earlier in the course to be able to define uh, ability to resect. But that space, so few, 10 or 15% or not more of them have resectable disease at time of diagnosis. And also segues into the next great controversy is neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Right. So uh, it's, one, it's a great example where I think the, the practice has far outpaced the actual body of data. And I would say it's not just University of Minnesota, although honestly, you know, our practice has been doing that for a number of years, but many practices 
many institutions across the U.S. and internationally have been doing it. And then you come out, then you come out and you see uh, single center or multi-center studies supporting its use in resectable and alliance and other cooperative group trials again at borderline resectable and locally advanced, all with the idea of shrinking the tumor, make the job easier for the surgeon, achieve R0 resection, go after microscopic disseminated disease, and so on and so forth. And then I think my surgical colleagues will always cite these very high rates of complication for patients after surgery, maybe as high as 40% after Whipple, where they never get chemotherapy. But um, the exact regimen and how long to treat and um, even just using the new adjuvant therapy uh, approach is still somewhat controversial and still seems to need to be borne out with more data from actually well-designed randomized controlled trials. I know I feel like a GI ASCA symposium every year, there's always a debate and pro and con. And you know, I think that's uh, going on for a number of years. That's not new, but maybe more data will be forthcoming at this year's GI ASCA symposium and, and then uh, the annual meeting as well. Well, look, my goodness, that's a lot of information that we captured over the past uh, 30 minutes. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I think I, I feel we need to do an episode on each one of them. But, um, um, you know, I think it's very clear that the advances in GI oncology are really uh, huge. And maybe in the future, I think we will have GI oncologists who specialize only in cancers of the right colon. Exactly right. Exactly right. I, I used to joke at, when I was at uh, Sun Kettering and we had like, the army of GI oncologists, I think people would, uh, would specialize only in patients whose last name began with A through C and then you have the D through F cohort. <laughs> you know, uh, for, those, for those centers that have the luxury of having an army of oncologists and then, uh, you know, people like me, I think are, we might take on all comers, but uh, still take an interest in, uh, in learning the advances, for, uh, the nuances of care for all GI cancer patients and to helping everybody. Emil, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. And uh, until next time, we'll, we'll get you back on the Keras Molecular Minute. It'll be a great pleasure. Thank you so much for this time. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for spending some minutes with the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I appreciate the listening. I appreciate the loyalty. And I'd love to hear from you what you think about this podcast. To do so, send me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com and let me know how well we're doing and suggest any topics or guests. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as refer colleagues and friends. With that... Thank you for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves.